All right, I think I have everything working. You'd think I'd learn my lesson by now with technology, especially after last week. But here I go, trying it again. It's what I do. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Um, let's open our time together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for the gift of forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ, that by trusting in him alone, we can have that forgiveness, we can have eternal life. And Lord, we just pray over this time together. We just ask that you would work in and through it, that you would speak through me, and that you'd have everyone listening in, um, that they would hear your word, and that they would listen and heed to it and abide in you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so this time around, I'm going back to a movie analogy for a proper movie. No more Hallmark. I'm done with Hallmark. I want you, I, but I do want to bring to your, um, to your recollection a small subplot in a series of movies. And we're going to play, I uh, guess, a little game and see who gets it first, which movie I'm talking about, and who the characters are. So it's a very familiar movie series, um, one of my favorites. Actually, um, I just found out the other day that my boss's boss worked on the movie a little bit, so that was pretty cool to find out. Um, and it's, uh, this subplot involves three um, heroes. Um, they're very small within, well, two of them are very small within the series. Um, but they play an a, a overarching or important role in the series as a whole. Now, um, two of our heroes were captured by a group of villains. Um, they were traveling along back to their home base, the villains with these two in, in capture. Um, they were running back. They stopped because they were hungry. And because of this hunger, they were debating on eating the two captured um, heroes. Um, while they were debating, lo and behold, a good guy army comes, destroys the villains. Bill knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> they do not, however, see these two captors. Um, but they escape. And when they escape, this should be the, the clinch pin, they end up traveling into a place called Fengorn Forest. Do we know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about these two here. Uh, Mary Doc Brandybook and Peregrine Took. Or Marion Pippin. Lord of the Rings, yes. Um, and likely by now, when you hear the word Fengorn Forest, you can guess our third hero, the not-so-small... Um, Treebeard. He enters into the mix, and, and what I want to call to your recollection, though, is, you know, Treebeard and the other Ents have this discussion, deliberation on whether or not they're going to get involved in the war or not. They decide not to, so Treebeard's now taking the two home, or to a safe place. Um, he calls it the uh, western wall of the forest. And during their journey, uh, Mary decides to try and convince Treebeard, no, take us past Isengard. We're so small, they won't see us. And Treebeard reluctantly agrees. He thinks it's you know, a good enough reason. Um, however, Mary had an alternative motive to that, and that was to get Treebeard to this point. It's at this moment when Treebeard sees the destruction Isengard has wreaked and the fact that all of the other Ents have now been destroyed that he realizes 
that he is part of a remnant. And that's what we're going to focus on today. I use this movie analogy to talk about the fact that we need to live like a remnant, especially in today's day and age. And so when we look at this word remnant, I want to define it first for us. And what a remnant is, is it's what's left after, of a community after it undergoes a catastrophe, right? Treebeard is part of a small remnant after Saruman has the entire Fangorn forest destroyed, or almost all of it destroyed, right? And the Bible, this is a very common theme within the Bible, especially within the Old Testament. And it often refers to um, Judah and Israel within the Old Testament. There are a few instances where the theme of the remnant is applied to other nations, but it's not often. And when we read and learn about remnants in the Old Testament, we see that it's seen in both a negative and a positive light. In the negative, the remnant is seen as the people that is left after God's judgment, right? God has executed a judgment. The remnant is all that is left because of that. You see that with Noah, right? Noah and his family are the remnant that is left after God has judged the world through a flood. In the positive light, um, the remnant is seen as the people who are left to restore the, the, the Lord to Israel, to restore the nation to Israel, return them back to God. We're going to see that a little bit today as we play through. Um, so we need to ask, okay, who is included in the remnant? And the biblical remnant, again, mostly refers to the nation of Israel and or Judah. We see that right, very commonly throughout the Old Testament. It is a Jewish remnant is very prevalent. Um, the remnant is always part of the nation as a whole. In other words, they don't become a sub-nation. Right? The remnant doesn't start off you know, Israel too. Right? They're just within the nation of Israel. But they remain a distinct group spiritually. Right? Physically, they're all the same. Spiritually, you have a group that has um, stayed away from, gotten away from the Lord, and a group that has stayed close to him, all right? And that's the remnant. And then the other point about a remnant, it is that it is only made up of believers, right? That's the whole point of the remnant. It is the people that are left that still have their hearts turned towards the Lord, those who, have, um, who are the believers, and so when we look at the remnant, we see who's in it. My next question about looking at the remnant is how is it formed? How did this, this remnant come to be? And typically it is done by the grace of God, right? The remnant is the group that is saved by the grace of God. And typically it's due in part to their response to the Lord's word. How did they respond to God when he called them? Again, Noah being a great example of this, we see this in, in Hebrews 11.7, which says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right? The events unseen was the flood, rain. They didn't know what that was, right? God tells Noah, go build an ark, and he, by faith, does. He builds a boat. Nobody's had a boat before. And so, because of that, he acts in faith, and so he becomes the remnant because of that. 
And so today, what I really want to look at, when you look at Noah and his family, they're not actually a Jewish remnant. They would be considered what's called a general remnant because that was before the time of the nation of Israel. Right? Pre-nation of Israel, they're a general remnant. But I, what I want to look at today, and if you turn your Bibles into 1 Kings, I want to look at um, the first Jewish remnant. And if you don't have it, don't worry. I'm gonna, I put all the things up on the slides, which is great. I had a lot of fun doing that. Emily can tell you. But I want to start with a little bit of background before we get into um, our specific area. We're going to look at 1 Kings 16 through 19 today. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to start looking there. But a little bit of background. In chapter 12 of 1 Kings, this is the backstory, you have the nation of Israel splits into two different nations. You have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah as the southern kingdom. This happens all in chapter 12. And as part of the split, this guy, Jeroboam, becomes king in the north. He, is, he takes on that title, king of the north, and he doesn't want his people to travel to Judah to worship the Lord, right? So what I failed to do is put a map in here. Judah has Jerusalem, right? That is the holy city. That is the city where you are to go, according to the law, to worship. Right? You go down to Jerusalem to worship. Jeroboam doesn't have Jerusalem. So he's like, no, I can't have that. Right? We see this here in 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if these people go up to, to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah, right? He knows that this split was not supposed to happen, that Israel was supposed to remain as one nation. But now that he's got power, he doesn't want that to go. He doesn't want to let go of it. So what does he do? Well, in his manly wisdom, he creates two golden calves. I don't know why people worship cows. I love to eat cows personally, but that's just me. Um, but he creates two golden calves. He instructs the people, he sets them up in two different parts of the, the nation, one in a northern city, one in a southern city. And then he introduces, he instructs the people to worship these golden calves. He's introducing a false religion of idolatry, right? Um, he sets up this religion that's mostly based off the Mosaic law. You're still going to follow the Mosaic law, but instead of going to Jerusalem, you're going to go to my cities, you're going to worship my cows, right? That's his, his plan. And um, all that he did was in violation to the Mosaic law. And he knew this. He willingly knew this. He willingly set this up. And so by the time we get to 1 Kings 16, um, this false religion had been in play for over 80 years. So we have 80 years of the two nations separate, Israel worshiping these cows and Judah doing their own thing. I didn't really study what Judah was doing in that time. It's not what I was focusing on. All right, but in 1 Kings 16, where we're going to look at today, we see a new dynasty come into play um, in the northern kingdom. There's a lot of battles. If you read 12 through 16, um, you see a lot of the turmoil and political battles going on between the different kings and whatnot. 
But one thing that is a very common theme is that they all follow in the ways of Jeroboam. The same happens in 16. This starts with Omari. Omari, at the, in, at the middle of chapter 16, defeats his contender for the crown, and he continues in the way of Jeroboam, like everyone else before him. We see this, look down to um, 16, verses 25 through 26, which reads, Omari did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebet, and in the sins he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God to Israel to anger by their idols. Right? Eighty years of this idol worship still continuing, still perpetuating, still building the context of what we're going to see, the culture of Israel, right? And, as, and I say that this is a new dynasty because after Omari dies, his son takes up the crown after him. We see this little verses down in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omari, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omari, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. So the dynasty is coming, right? The Omari was reigning, his son now takes over, and he does something that's even worse than Omari. Look down at verse 30 through 33, which says, And Ahab, the son of Omari, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if he had been a light, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebet. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal and a house, and in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, um, Focus on this, right? He did more. Ahab did more than all who were before him, right? I really like find it interesting that the the word says that it would have been a light thing for him to follow Jeroboam, right? Because there's we have a history of Jeroboam followers, right? It would have been light to just do that, but no, he does more. He does worse than that, right? And what does he do? He erects an altar for Baal. He creates a house for Baal in Samaria, right? And he makes an Asherah. So there's a couple of things here, right? He is now introducing an old God to Israel, right? This is like buying a used car, right? When I go to buy a used car, it's new to me, but it's been around the block a few times, right? That's essentially what he's doing. He's bringing in this old pagan god to Israel. Israel has not worshipped Baal before, and now they are, right? He's doing this on behalf of his wife, Jezebel. Um, He erects the altar. He builds a house. He makes an Asherah. Now, that's a funny word there, Asherah. Asherah. I'm saying it wrong. What is it? I had to look this one up. It's a pole, essentially a tree with its limbs stripped. Sometimes there's images carved into it. And it refers to um, a, a pagan goddess, Asherah, right? So what's interesting is that Baal is, the, what is commonly referred to as the god of the sun. Asherah is the goddess of the moon or night. So they're worshiping the sun and the moon through her. And she's also a goddess of fertility. 
And we see here um, towards the end of verse 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. He did more. He um, wants Israel to worship this false god. And this gives us a better view into the culture that they were living in. If you think about it, you have 80 years of idolatry, and now this new god gets brought in. What does um, Ahab have to do to make the people worship his new god? Right? What kind of restrictions does he have to put on his people to get them to worship this new god? Right? We see this commonly throughout the Old Testament, that when um, Israel is captured, and brought into a city, you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're brought into um, Babylon. Sorry, that names escaped me. They're brought into Babylon, and they're told to worship the king or die. Well, what about here? It doesn't give us a light into what Ahab did, but it could have been something along those lines. Worship Baal or die. Worship Baal or don't work. Worship Baal or don't sell, right? Whatever he could have done. And this sets the stage for the Lord to introduce his prophet, Elijah. And this happens through 16 through 19. Again, we're not going to read all the chapters. High-level overview here. Um, Elijah and the Remnant. This sounds like it should be a band, right? Elijah and the Remnant. 1950s, anyone? Yeah? Thank you. (laughs) High-level overview of these um, three chapters. Um. I encourage you to read them if you haven't before, but Elijah essentially challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel, right? We're going to set up these sacrifices. You call on your God to, to light a fire. I'll call on mine, and we'll see who wins, right? At the end of it, um, Elijah prevails through the power of the Lord God, right? The fire comes down, consumes everything, the, the sacrifice, the water, everything. And as part of that, as part of his, his victory, he executes all the prophets of Baal. So they're all gone. And then Jezebel now seeks to kill Elijah. And so this brings us to Elijah essentially um, falling into a state of disarray, a state of um, depression, if you will. We see that in chapter 19. Elijah... Um, has a hard time eating, the Lord brings food to him, and he goes on a journey and ends up in a cave. And what I want to focus on is um, chapter 19. We're going to start looking at verses 9 through 10. Um, Where Elijah here, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life and take it away. So here you have God. He's reaching out to Elijah, and he's reprimanding him. He's essentially saying, why have you come to this place, Elijah? You were a leader in the house of Israel, and now you have deserted your post. There is no one here amongst these rocks that you can minister to, right? You are in a rocky solitude. You are alone. What are you doing here? And we see Elijah's response that it's almost like his sorrows were too much for him. It was too much for him to see 
the Lord blasphemed the way that they did, right? They killed all the prophets. They threw down the altars, right? He feels like he's the only one left to serve the Lord. And it's almost as if he's upset with the Lord himself for not interceding for his prophets. But then, looking down at verse 11a, we see this. He said, the Lord, speaking to Elijah, go stand on the mountain before the Lord. Come outside, Elijah, where you can breathe the fresh air again and see what the Lord will teach you, right? And then we get into the lesson that the Lord will bring to Elijah. See this in the rest of the chapter. And he said, go out and stand before the mountain of the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face and his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice that said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nishi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Seraphat of Abel-Mohel, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So I want you to notice that there's a parallel here between the noise and what Elijah, um, the people that Elijah anoints, right? You have Hazael, the king of Syria, who corresponds with the wind. And just as the wind beat against the mountain, Hazael will beat against Israel and reduce its population. We see this throughout 2 Kings. Jehu corresponds with the earthquake who split the mountains, right? In 2 Kings, we see Jehu start up a civil war that destroys the dynasty of Ahab and even splits the royal members of the house of Judah. Elijah corresponds with the fire. Just as fire burned against Israel, Elijah will burn against the people. And often when you see where Elijah goes, death follows. And while God sent these three noisy things, his presence was not in them. It isn't until we get to the still small voice, the quiet. Oh, that didn't do what I wanted. That's what I wanted. <laughs> the still small voice, the quiet, where the Lord we see the Lord's presence, right? The still small voice contains the presence of the Lord. And this corresponds with the remnant of that day, those that are left. The Lord had left 7,000 men, right? 
It is such a small group of people compared to the entire population that Elijah didn't even know they existed. So what we learn about the remnant of Elijah's day is that they did not bow to Baal or have kissed him, right? Bowing down and kissing, right? These are signs of submission that were offered to kings and gods. So in other words, that amidst the peer pressure, amidst the turmoil, the trouble, the controversy, right, of what could have been done to them, in the midst of all the cultural chaos, we see these 7,000 remain faithful to the Lord. They did not show any sign of submission. They did not give in to the king's demands. While the majority went along with the establishment, if you will, the establishment of 80 years of idolatry and however many years of paganism, they remain faithful to God. And so when I take a look at this and I see a story like this, I want to look at it and go, okay, that's cool. How does that apply to us today, right? When we look at... Um, this world of false gods, idolatry, a false religion, paganism, whatnot, you name it, right? A culture that, that is in complete disarray and uproar, right? Israel does not have a set king, right? You read 12 through 16, and it's war after war after war of different kings coming in and doing their own way. The only thing consistent is their idolatry. So when we look at that and look at today, What does the Bible say about today? And I love how the Bible prophesies about today's day and age. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, which says, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I really like how New King James puts this one. I I think I like New King James a little bit better on this verse, which says, But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. The common word there is, Difficulty and perilous, right? Um, that is this word, halepios. Haha, <laughs> I took some Greek. I kind of know how to say it. Uh, halepios is the Greek word here that, that is used, and it, is, it pertains to something troublesome, difficulty, a hard time, a time of stress, right? This is what the Bible prophesies about the days that we are living in, right? When we read through the prophecies about the Antichrist coming in, he comes into the world, he steps on the world stage proclaiming peace and safety. What does that mean? Right? Think about that. You have an Antichrist coming in proclaiming that he can bring peace and safety, a world leader saying, I can give you the peace and safety you desire. It means that the world has to get to a place of disarray. It has to get to a place where there is no peace, where there is no safety, where everyone is thinking about that. Right? In, in a post-pandemic world, everyone thinks about, hey, we're going to go back to normal, right? I want this back to normal thing. We don't see that happening. Instead, we see the world progressing more and more into lawlessness and disarray, right? Daniel chapter 12 describes the end days as a time of trouble which has never been seen since there was a nation, right? That's how bad it's going to get. I recently um, was listening to a podcast. I do that a lot. And the, one of the guys on the podcast described the times like this. I want you to, to picture in your mind a woodworker. I forgot to put the picture in here, Emily. You're killing me. Um, picture a woodworker in his wood shop. And he has this log in front of him, big log. But he's taking a planer. I don't know if you've seen those planers, but it's a little thing. You scrape it along the log, and then the log pieces curl up and fall to the ground. 
And that is the picture I want you to think of, of the evil of this day and age, taking the log that is the culture of our times and systematically wearing it down to the size of a toothpick, whittling it away little by little. Eventually, we will get there. We will get to the point where there is nothing left, right? Second Timothy, continuing on there, Paul continues to describe this day and age and what it's actually going to look like. We see this in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3. For the people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Right? This, to me, speaks of society. When you look around, this is what I see when I look around. Right? Um, we have a society that is dedicated to self-love and the love of money. Right? Get to that next goal. Make more money. Right? That kind of a thing. I can't be happy unless I have X, Y, Z. Give me the boat. Give me the camper. Give me this. Right? We have a whole month that is dedicated to pride and arrogance. Right? A whole month of it. If you spend five minutes on Twitter, I hate spending time on Twitter. The only reason I have a Twitter is because it's, it's easier to get responses from Microsoft if you publicly shame them, shame them. If you ever work in technology, know that. Publicly shame Microsoft, they respond faster. But I hate going on there because you spend five minutes on it, you see the abusive, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, slanderous brutality of today's culture, right? They call them internet trolls, right? They just are all over the place. You see a society that is full of a lack of self-control, right? And that lack of self-control is even praised. You have lovers of pleasure all around that are even trying to pressure you into accepting their love of whatever, right? Um, And don't forget the fact that all of this is being done in the name of tolerance, right? You hear that word a lot. Why don't you just tolerate them, right? It appears godly or good, right? Don't you just want to love other people, right? They would claim, can't you accept me for who I am, right? Those are very common things that we see and hear. Why are you trying to change me, right? When you give the gospel to someone and they say that, why are you trying to change me? I just want to do me and you do you and we'll all be happy, right? That sounds good, sounds godly, but it is not, right? Paul here tells us to avoid such people. Sorry. However, what people don't realize is that it's not me that's trying to change them. My job is to remain faithful to the word of the Lord, to remain faithful to what he has said, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of our salvation. But guess what? That good news comes with a lot of bad news first, right? And if someone hears that bad news and feels convicted, it's not my doing. That is so liberating and so freeing to know that it's not my doing. It is the Lord doing. The Lord is convicting that person, calling them to repentance. And what happens when they don't? They are rejecting God, right? I may be the recipient of a tribulation, of cursing, of what have yous, right? 
But that's not me that they're rejecting. That's God. I just happen to be at the other end of it. So when we look at this and we see this kind of playing out, this world building on itself, getting worse and worse as we go, um, what can we do to live practically like a remnant in this day and age? What can we take away, right? We see in 2 Timothy that there's an epidemic. It's an epidemic of sin. It's an epidemic of lawlessness. It's an epidemic of people rejecting God and what he has done for us. And the Bible tells us, again, we see all this bad stuff happening, all of this sin in 2 Timothy. The Bible tells us and is very clear that God is holy and righteous, and he must judge this sin, right? That is very clear. But God loves us so much that he provided a way for us to escape. Right? The first thing that we need to do to live like a remnant is to believe in the gospel of our salvation. Right? Yes, there is this bad news. But guess what? There's good news also. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. Right? One only has to admit that they are a sinner in need of saving. I love how Romans 3.23 puts it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah, Psalms, they're all very clear that all of us are sinners. After we recognize our sins, that we cannot save ourselves, we have to believe and confess that belief. Again, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right? This is an inward and outward expression of trust. Confessing are not separate activities, but an expression of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Having that faith is central and foundational to being able to live like a remnant in this day. A saving faith is not mere intellect. Yes, I recognize that these events happened, right? You have historians that do that, that recognize the historicity of the Bible, but do not have faith, right? It's more than just intellect, intellectual knowledge. It's a deep inward belief that these events happened and that you are saved through the grace of God, through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This enables us to live with God's perfect peace in our lives. After setting yourself up with this deep personal relationship with God by accepting him, you have to have a consistent diet of the Bible. Consistent diet, right? Where do you meet God? Where does God meet you? He revealed his word to us in this book, right? This book contains everything that we could ever need or want to know about the Lord, right? One does not simply rely on other preachers, books, YouTube, whatever, right? If you spend, again, five minutes on Twitter, YouTube, social media, you search anything biblical, a biblical topic, you'll get everything under the sun will come up. And how do you know who is speaking truth and who is speaking a lie unless you have consistently read and understood this book by yourself? We cannot be dependent on the opinions of others. But we have to, as um, Paul writes it, we have to work out our own salvation in fear and reverence. Right? He's speaking of, in that section, of knowing and understanding the word, 
believing it, right? Knowing it for yourself. We have to be what's called a Berean, a studier of the Scripture. Determine what it says. Right? When you look at the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes this book to the church because pretenders have come in, they have claimed that they have a letter from Paul, they know Paul, they're teaching false doctrines, they're teaching lies, right? But Paul sends a letter from him specifically to correct that, to knock it down, right? Jesus warns consistently of the false teachers and sensationalism that will arise in the end days. Men will try to draw us in with a crowd, and again, you go to the YouTube example, you could find someone that could make me sound like a fool, right? But because they sound good, they make you laugh, they're funny, right? I'll believe them, right? They, they sound good enough. But again, as the Bible warns, the devil roars about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you don't have that consistent diet, you can get pulled away, pulled astray from the Lord. And lastly, what I want to close with is this, that we need to be, remain faithful to the Lord and his commands, his revealed word. When we, um, that's what we can take away from the remnant that's outlined throughout the scripture, right? God never changed. The Bible is very spe- clear on that. In the however many years I've been reading this book, no matter what translation, it remains the same, right? Unless you go with something wonky like the street Bible. That's like way out there. Uh, But this book remains the same. The Lord remains the same. Scripture does not change. The Lord is always consistent and steadfast. Our role is to remain faithful to the word, to what it says, and to let God do the rest. We are knee-deep in spiritual war. That is what's going around today. When you look around and you see doctrines of demons trying to take over the world, right? Trying to change whatever. Right? We want to change the definition of, of boy and girl. We want to change the definition of marriage. We want to change this, change that. Right, Things that have been established that are biblically established. Those are what's called doctrines of demons. They're trying to confuse definitions, erase truth, and ruin lives, and essentially pull people away from the Lord. I also heard it put this way that we are that that the spiritual war and the last days events are coming together in a collision course, right? They are going to collide and it's going to be an explosion unlike anything has ever seen. Regardless of what this world throws at us, we are to remain faithful and when we remain faithful, we have the Lord's perfect peace. I like how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 26 um, he writes speaking to the remnant of Israel during the end days, but it's something that we can take away from. Isaiah writes, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Right? He's talking to the nation of Israel during the end days. He's telling them to keep your mind stayed on the Lord. Right? Brad asked me this morning what song I wanted him to, to, if I had any song requests, I love Be Thou in My Vision, right? Because it speaks so much truth of keeping your mind and your heart stayed on the Lord, right? Be Thou my vision, God. That is my prayer daily. I want Him to be my vision. And Psalm chapter 1 also tells us what happens when the Lord is our vision. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Be thou my vision. The one who says that. Verse 3, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. Like the remnant of the past, we are to remain faithful. And when we remain faithful to him and to his word, he will make us prosper in his time. It may not feel like it, right? I, like I said, you go out, I put out you know, videos on YouTube proclaiming the, the word of the Lord, and I get feedback and flack from all over the place. I don't care about that. Uh, my job is to remain faithful. And with that, the Lord will make me prosper in his time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for your goodness and your love. We thank you, God, that you provide us um, these examples of remnants throughout the nation of Israel that we can take from, we can glean from, we can learn from, and we can learn to remain faithful. We can learn to have a heart steadfast for you because you, God, are steadfast for us. Lord, we're thankful that we can have the forgiveness of our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ, that by trusting in him alone, Right, him alone, we have forgiveness. We have eternal life with you. And Heavenly Father, we just want to pray that you would guide this people, guide us, Lord, in these dreadful days, these perilous days. We just ask, God, that we would remain faithful, that we would be consistent in the Lord, and that we all deepen and grow our relationship with you. We thank you and we praise you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.